You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. I asked my wife for a strange fact about myself because not everyone here knows me really well. And you have to be careful the day you ask that question, because what she said was, well, you mess up my kitchen all the time, because you're a mad scientist, which is fair and true. I, uh, I studied biochemistry in college, and I, I don't have a lab anymore, so our kitchen is often my lab, and I pickle things and try strange things and make a mess all the time, and my wife loves me, which I appreciate. Uh, but because she said that, and because I was thinking about our scripture for today, I decided to conduct an experiment. And I thought I would include you in the results. So it's pretty simple. Basically, what I did was I boiled three things. Uh, coffee. Eggs. And a sweet potato. And the results probably won't surprise you. Uh, the sweet potato, which started out pretty uh, firm, has gone from tender to mushy. And just, yeah. The egg, having been boiled, right, is now gone from mushy to rather firm, but the coffee has moved into, well, the coffee hasn't actually changed hardly at all, but a really strange effect has happened. Uh, Whereas these two didn't have any effect on their water at all, uh, this has become delicious. (laughs) And I think that's really interesting. They they experienced the same set of circumstances, the same set of, well, uh, pressures and troubles. And two responded in the way you would sort of expect. But the third responded completely differently. So differently, in fact, that you would be tempted to pay $5 for this. (laughs) And if I were to boil the potato for longer, if I were to boil the egg for longer, we would say that they've been ruined. But if you boil coffee for longer, you say it grows stronger. This is to say nothing of the fact that coffee has been ground into tiny bits, uh, well, fermented, and lots of terrible things have happened to it along the way. Coffee is just unstoppable. Uh, No amount of trouble or circumstance can change the character of it somehow. It always seems to have a greater effect on its environment than an environment seems to have on it. Coffee is like Jesus. In our text today, coffee is going to sound an awful lot like Jesus. And we want to be like Jesus. We want to respond differently to trouble and trial and tribulation. We want to live differently. We want to live deliciously. Would you turn with me in a Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3? You're actually going to need a Bible, by the way. 1 Peter 3, we're going to start at verse 17. We're continuing in a series called On a Mission of Hope. And today we're on a mission of hope as we live differently. 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigures, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers made subject to him. 
Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same intention. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, so as to live for the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. You have already spent enough time doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation, and so they blaspheme. But they will have to give an accounting to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that they have been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious. Discipline yourself for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thomas Akempis, in a great devotional he wrote in the 12th century, said that the measure of every person's virtue is best revealed in time of adversity. Adversity that does not weaken a person, but rather shows who they are. Adversity shows who we are. Uh, this is true not just for theologians, but for football coaches. Right? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. This is something that is true, Peter would say, for Jesus. That Jesus chooses to suffer in the flesh to bring the, well, those of us who need him back to God. And the way Jesus suffers is very much the same way that my coffee suffered through that boiling water. Um, the more we see Jesus suffer, the, the stronger we get a sense of who he is, the stronger we get a sense of just how much he loves us, what he'd be willing to go through for us. When he dies on the cross, when he descends, when he's raised, when he ascends, these are incredible things we say about Jesus, what he was willing to do for you and for me. And you and I, we follow Jesus. That's what Peter says, that we, we arm ourselves with the same intention. We want to be exactly like Jesus in our willingness to suffer for unrighteous people in the hopes that they might come to know Jesus, that we would have a stronger effect on our circumstances and our surroundings than our circumstances would have on us. There's this line in Second uh, Corinthians, Paul's talking. He says, you and I, we're like the aroma of Christ. We're the fragrance of him wherever he goes. People can just smell something about Jesus when they're around us. They get a sense of the flavor of Jesus in the gospel. They can get a sense of the love of God, and it's, oh, it's delicious. Oh, my goodness. That you and I, we spread that wherever we go, that the more we know Jesus, the more powerfully we have an effect on the world around us, even though the world around us doesn't always love the fragrance of the gospel. This week, I was in a coffee shop. Surprise. I was in a coffee shop, and I was chatting with a girl, and I had this unique opportunity of sharing the gospel, which happens every now and again, and you're always sort of wondering what God wants you to do at a given moment. So we were sitting and talking, and I got to talk a lot about Jesus. And she said, yeah, I was, I was raised born again. And I said, I don't know what that means. Even though I do know what that means, I have no idea what that means in her story. I just don't know. And she said, my dad, my dad was really just a huge hypocrite. A huge hypocrite. She kept saying that word, hypocrite, over and over again. And she went into detail, which was weird, because I'm a stranger in a coffee shop. And she talked about how he treated her and how he treated other people. And she talked about the way he just seems to hate the world. And he seems to hate all sorts of people. And he's really judgmental. And he talks a lot about Jesus, but he doesn't seem to follow Jesus. It drives me crazy. 
And when I was going to school, he talked about how I was going to go to this liberal place. I was going to learn all these liberal things from liberal people and read liberal books with doubts and all sorts of stuff. And I'd go to their parties and I'd drink with them and we'd have sex and all. I'd just lose my faith in Jesus. And the more we talked, I was, I was struck by a lot of things about the dad. But one of the things I was struck by was how afraid he was. We weren't really talking about him. We ended up talking about Jesus. But how afraid he was of the world around us. And I understand some of that fear because I love my kids. Right? And I, I want my kids to love me and I want my kids to love Jesus. But most of that fear is really just confusing to me. Because we want to believe something but that doesn't mean we don't think about what we believe. There have been great theologians in the church who say that uh, we're all about believers becoming thinkers and thinkers becoming believers. That's what we're about. And Christianity actually would tell you that we don't have anything to fear from math and science. Logic. We have a God who made those things. That actually some really great thinkers, philosophers, theologians in the history of the church would tell you you shouldn't be afraid of the world around us and the questions they ask and the things that they want to talk about. Because, well, Jesus is better. It's just delicious. There's, you're just going to taste it. and mm, There's just something about it. In fact, what they would tell you is that if you don't follow Jesus, you should be really careful about reading the Bible. You should be really careful about hearing about the lives of the saints or actually spending the time really thinking about what it is that we believe you should spend as much of your time away from Jesus as possible because, well, you'll probably become a Christian because that's what happened to many of them. They asked a lot of questions and they dove really deeply in the sorts of things that people want to know about, like why are we here? What gives life meaning? What's the point of human existence? We're all about thinkers becoming believers and believers becoming thinkers. Christianity doesn't have a problem like the Wizard of Oz does. Don't look behind that curtain, you'll find our deep dark secret. Don't ask this question or don't ask that question. Don't read this book, don't read that book. Who knows? We have nothing to fear from people who genuinely want to find truth. We have nothing to fear as people who genuinely want to find truth. Because we genuinely believe that in Jesus we found the truth. And it's delicious. Absolutely delicious. Peter seems extremely confident in the passage of Scripture we're reading. Chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. He doesn't sound at all concerned about the world outside the church. He's talking about sin, but he talks about sin in a way where he says, it's just a waste of your time. Living a life without God is just a waste of your life. And you already know that because you've come to see just how rich and how deep is the flavor of the gospel. It, why would you go messing around with stuff like that? It's just a, a waste. He says, you want to be like Jesus, and Jesus who suffers because he is well, righteous and in a world of unrighteousness. Jesus is somebody who fights for justice in a world that doesn't really love justice. Jesus is somebody who loves beauty and truth in a world that is consistently against beauty and truth. As people, we're bound to suffer, but in the midst of our suffering, we find that we have a stronger effect over our environment than our environment has on us. He says, so you want to make this sort of a resolution to live the rest of your life, not according to the you know, human desires, but according to the will of God, the sort of stuff we read about in Scripture, because you've wasted plenty of time living other ways. And it goes into a list of sins, and they're sort of in pairs. So this is verse 3, if you want to follow along. Verse 4 or 3. The first, two verse, the first two sins really are um, about sex. So basically, it's the idea that um, there's such a thing as good and bad sex. The church believes this. There's such a thing as good and bad sex. Our culture does not always like the idea that there's such a thing as good and bad sex. We believe there's such a thing as good and bad sex. We want you to have really good sex. Spectacular sex. No one's giving me an amen. I want you to have spectacular sex. <laughs> Jesus wants you to have spectacular sex. I mean, that's just that's really good news today. 
That, and he's saying you don't want to mess around with the sort of sexual behavior and activity that the world outside the church wants to mess around with. Because ultimately we think that's going to lead to really bad sex. You want really good sex. And the next two verses are all about uh, the way that you go to parties or the way you conduct yourselves around other people when um, drinking is involved. And so basically, when you go to a party, don't get crazy drunk. It's pretty straightforward advice. And people who follow Jesus, you want to have some sense of control over yourself and over your judgment, in part because that'll actually save you from the first two sins he was just talking about. You want to be in your right mind. And he's really talking about wine, but I think we could expand that out to, well, other kinds of alcohol and recreational drug use and really anything that ends up distracting you from being the person you're called to be. And the third set of sins is all about idolatry. It's the idea that uh, outside the church there are people who believe in God who isn't our God. And because we know how good our God is and how great our God is, that that also is a waste of your life. And for Peter, this is all kind of wrapped up in itself. For you and me, these are like separate things. But in Peter's world, if you were to walk down the street, there would have been churches of other gods that you would go into and you could have sex with a priest in order to get that God's favor. That you could go into and, and spend a great deal of money or you would join in this kind of drinking party in honor of a God and you'd get crazy drunk and you'd be puking in the streets and that was in honor of your God. And this was all in service of money or fame or success or health. These were their gods and they, they had names and they had faces and there were statues. A couple of thousand years later, after Christianity has sort of conquered the world, you and I live in that world at this point. We live in a time where nobody would say, well, I have this temple to fame, because that would sound really, you know, not great. But that's really because there's this sort of lingering sense of Judeo-Christianity out in the world, where that would be ludicrous. Plenty of people worship fame. They just, you know, they call it Instagram influencing or other things like that. Plenty of people worship sex. They just call it other things in our time. Plenty of people worship money. They worship power. They worship all sorts of things. They just don't want to call it a god. But we would call that a god. The thing that's the most important thing in your life that you will spend all of your time and money and energy serving, that's a God. For us, that's Jesus. And we would say that anything else is a waste of time. Not because anything else has no value whatsoever, but because of what we found in Jesus is just so good, so rich, so delicious. <clears throat> this is a wonderful sermon illustration. I'm loving every minute of it. There's something really great that we found in Jesus. And in verse 4, Peter says that what's going to happen is people are going to be surprised that you don't want to live the way you used to live. And you don't want to join them in the things you used to join them in. They're going to be surprised. And there's this kind of fancy word in my translation, and so I think a better way. They're going to be surprised you don't join them in a flood of sin. And they might blaspheme. And that word blaspheme there, what he what really means is that they're going to insult you. And they're going to insult the God that you follow, and they're going to insult the way of life you've chosen. And Peter doesn't say, and now you need to fight back. You need to get really defensive. You need to mount arguments. You need to get angry. What he says in the very next verse is, trust the same God that you trust all the time to deal with them. Who cares? Who cares what they say about you? Love well. Live well. Let that be your response. Become really disciplined people, he says in verse 7. And become people who love really well, he says in verse 8. And these things are not mutually exclusive for those of us who follow Jesus. Our discipline leads us into loving well. The more we love Jesus, the more we love well. The more we love well, the more we realize we need Jesus. But still, it's going to be tricky to follow Jesus, he says. People are going to get mad at you for living good and righteous lives. You're going to get mad at you for being really moral people. And you might not believe that because we seem to live in a fairly polite society. But people will. I can tell you that I've hung out with a lot of high school and junior high and college students over the years. And if you ask any one of them who's come to know Jesus, is it hard to follow Jesus? Yeah. 
My friends stopped talking to me. They don't invite me to parties anymore. My family kicked me out of the house. I've literally heard that from different kids. Some of these are 20, some of these are 16, some of these are 13. Following Jesus is hard. And maybe it hasn't been hard for you, and that's great, that's wonderful, that's glorious. But I think one of the questions you have to ask along the way is, if it hasn't been hard for you, why? Is it because life has been so good and people have surrounded you really love Jesus well, or is it possible that maybe there's not a whole lot of difference between you and the, the world that you inhabit? Peter seems really confident, really confident that we're going to be such different people that it's going to offend folks. Because by giving up their way of life, it's going to seem like we're judging them. But that's not what's happening. I have this friend I was talking to this week. We ran into each other, and he was telling me, my wife is 588 days sober. Just sent me a text with 588 days. That's incredible. I said, congratulations. Amazing. He said, yeah, she was, you know, kind of a social drinker. And we realized it was a problem, and she realized it was a problem. And she started talking to some folks about it, and they said, what, are you saying I drink too much? You think I have a problem? No, I'm just saying I think I have a problem. I think I'm drinking too much. Well, you're drinking with me. You think I? And something about her wanting to get clean and sober pushed a lot of people around her into a really angry place. Because by trying to become a better person, trying to become a more healthy, more whole person, she was judging the way of life they were living. Not because she actually was judging them, but just her change made them feel like they were doing something wrong. Because if it's wrong for you, maybe it's wrong for me. And she would say that it was a really long, hard struggle, but she went through a Christian 12-step program, and she came to know Jesus, and she came to know a lot of things about Jesus. And now on the back end, there are people who talk to her, and they go, I think I might have a problem. She goes, I don't know if you have a problem or not, but I can tell you you need Jesus. They talk a lot about Jesus. You know, I think there's this person in my life who might have sort of a substance abuse issue, or actually it might not be an alcohol thing, but they might have a different kind of addiction. I don't know if they have a problem or not, but I can tell you a lot about Jesus. I can tell you he saved me. I can tell you what he saved me from. I have a very clear idea, she'd say, of what he saved me from and what he saved me for. Uh, those high school students and college students I mentioned, they had the same experience. There's something about being pushed, pressed, sort of feeling a cultural pressure around you that clarifies whether or not what you found in Jesus really is as good as you think it is. Because you could just give it up. You could just walk away. That's always a temptation. That's always an obvious thing. There's a sweet potato Christianity that is out there for anybody. Peter brings up the story of Noah. Noah is a story you might not know, and it's a weird thing that he does. But Noah is as someone who in Genesis 6 we hear about. And the story goes like this. In the very beginning, God made the, wor God made the world, and human beings mess it up which sounds really believable to me, uh, that human beings messed up the world. And uh, some time passes, and it gets really, really, really messed up, and nobody cares about God, and society's kind of falling apart, and the sins that Peter mentions actually are drops in the bucket. It's really, really bad. Uh, people are bragging about murder. Sex acts are getting crazier and crazier. Angels are getting involved in them. It's all over the place. Supernatural beings is crazy. And God's looking at the world and go, this is a mess. I, we just need to start over. But the God that we talk about is someone who's so soft-hearted that he can't actually bring himself to destroy the world. And so the instant he decides to maybe erase humanity, he also decides to rescue humanity. And he chooses Noah, and he tells Noah to build a boat. To build a boat, because a flood is coming. And Noah builds a boat. Noah, the lone righteous man on earth. Noah, the only person on earth who goes, I would rather live by the will of God than by the you know, desires that the rest of humanity is living by. And any living thing that follows Noah into the boat will be saved. 
and nobody listens, which is not surprising when you hear about the state of humanity at the time, but also surprising. And the way a lot of people tell the story is there's this guy in the Middle East, and he's building a boat, and he says, God's really mad at the world. And you go, you're in the Middle East. I don't think it's going to rain nearly enough to need that boat. And God's really mad at the way we're living our lives. We've got to change our lives. Come with me. Be saved. People go, I'd rather live this way, and I don't think there's anything that's coming for us. And the door gets sealed shut, and that's when the rain starts. And eight people are saved, Peter says. Eight people are saved through water because of the patience of God. The story of Noah is not a story of how much God hates the world. Not a story of how much God hates humanity. It sounds like it sometimes. It's not. It's a story of how much God loves humanity. The lengths that God would go to to save us, even when he knows how crippled and broken we are. The story of baptism, Peter says, is not a story of how much God hates you or how dirty you are, how messed up you are. The story of baptism is how much God loves you, how good God is, how he wants to give you this gift, a brand new life, a brand new conscience, a brand new will. He will change you from the inside out. You can be saved, he says. Now, nobody, nobody who'd been saved from the flood would say, I want to go live in the flood. That's what Peter's. That's why he uses the word flood in verse 4. Nobody who'd been saved from what Noah was saved from would ever try to live the way other people had lived. Nobody who'd been saved like my friend from alcoholism would say, I'm just going to go back to drinking at parties. That would be crazy. That's the very thing that God saved me from. It's the very life God led me out of. But talking about these sorts of things, that there's such a thing as a good and a bad life, the idea that there's such a thing as judgment in the world, makes a lot of people really uncomfortable, especially in the church, but outside the church as well. That, that God judges people, that some people experience consequences for their actions, that there really are standards in the world. And I think the real temptation is, is to a sweet potato kind of Christianity. Uh, one that experiences sort of this pressure and discomfort in the world and goes, you know what, actually, that's probably not that big a deal. And it's probably not that important to me. And you know what, I'm also really broken and I'm also really messy. And you know what, I'm not sure Christianity really has anything to offer and that really does sound judgmental and maybe we should just let all this go. And the truth is a sweet potato Christianity is only attractive compared to a hard-boiled kind of Christianity. Otherwise, it really has nothing to offer the world. No sense of truth and beauty and justice. No different way of living our lives. Peter's offering us something different. A different way of living our lives and a different way of talking to other people about Jesus. That we would be people who live so well, who love so well that they would be drawn in, that they would be attracted to this. Uh, the kind of verse 7 and verse 8, when he talks about the discipline we have, that's the kind of thing that makes a lot of people go, okay, I'm going to be really solid, I'm going to be really righteous, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be better than other people. I'm going to be a lot better than a lot of other people. And you see that everywhere, inside the church and outside the church. People love to be righteous. I have a 401k, those people out there. I don't use microaggressions, those people out there. I only buy organic, those people out there. I, I'm the kind of person who's politically informed. I don't listen to those sorts of news programs. I don't pay attention to that kind of social media. We love to be more righteous than somebody else. And unsurprisingly, you can use religion for that. That's the sort of hard-boiled Christianity. It doesn't lead people to Jesus. It doesn't really lead you any closer to Jesus. But it will give you a great sense of superiority. The second kind of Christianity, the sweet potato Christianity, goes, you know what, I'm really broken, I'm really flawed, I'm really messy. I still like gluten. I, you know, I do, I still, I, I know everybody else doesn't, but I still like gluten, and I, I still listen to offensive comedians, and I find them funny, and maybe I shouldn't, and I still participate in stuff like this, and I don't want to be politically informed. It just seems like way too much work, and I don't want to, I'm not even going to vote. I'm just, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm not voting, because I'm just, I'm running away from the whole thing. 
And this idea that there's, there's no such thing as, as good and bad, and, and we should all just sort of assume that that doesn't exist. But again, that's only really attractive compared to the more hard-boiled version of the world. The idea that no one's really righteous, so we shouldn't even try. There's a problem with that. If I see a bird walking around with a broken wing, I say, well, you know, that looks painful, and that looks hard, and I'm sad for you. But, you know, it's beautiful that you've learned to hop this way. That's a really good thing. What somebody who really has discovered who God is and what God's called us to be would say you were made to fly. And not only were you made to fly, I'm not going to judge you for not being able to fly. I'm telling you there's a God who can heal you, who can let you fly again. Only a crazy person looks at an alcoholic and says, you don't have a problem. Nobody has a problem. We're all sinners, and it's fine that you feel sick all the time and you're destroying your body. We would say, hey, you have a problem, and we think there's a solution. We're not into this to judge you. We're offering you something great and gracious and wonderful, the love of God and Jesus Christ. In verse 8, when it says love covers a multitude of sins, what he doesn't mean is we should just ignore sins. That's not what he's after at all. He's saying that love has a way of transforming sin, the same way that love has a way of transforming me, and love had a way of transforming you. And verse 18, when he says that Jesus, he dies, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. Jesus doesn't die as a statement about how bad the world is. That's not the story. The story is how much God loves us, the lengths that God would go because he loves us, because he wants us to be saved. Because we need to be saved. Because the world around us is broken and messy, and we want more than that. There's a guy named James Davidson Hunter who wrote a book, and he says, We want character, but without unyielding conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt or shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without the authority to insist upon it. We want more community without any limitations to personal freedom. In short, we want what we cannot possibly have on the terms in which we want it. Jesus is offering us exactly what we want. Something better, actually, than the world offers us. Not some invented version of my own righteousness. Not some version where nobody has a problem, even though we know we actually do have problems. He's offering something delicious, something different, a way of living that's truly different in the world. The earliest church fell in love with these verses. They may sound strange to you. Uh, There's an old creed called the Apostles' Creed. And some of you may have memorized it at some point in time or heard it at some point in time. It's basically one of the earliest statements of belief that Christians have. It was something they were willing to be fed to lions for. And it's, it's pretty short, because if you're going to die for Jesus, you want to make sure you're only dying for essential things. And so in that list of things they believe about Jesus, they go, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then our verses from Peter, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. Third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. Just a really, really brief version of the gospel. That in Jesus Christ what we have is the God of the universe who became one of us that he could save us from all of the things we do wrong to ourselves and to other people. Who could offer us the kind of love that we're really looking for because it's blended with a kind of grace and a kind of truth that we're really looking for. A kind of life that we're really looking for because it responds to the world differently as a way of changing the world around it while remaining unchanged itself. As Christians, we're people who really know more and more and more about Jesus so we know where we stand, so that when we meet other people, we can invite them to a new place to stand. 
It's not so that we can brag about having firm ground underneath our feet. It's so we can invite more and more and more people who desperately need solid ground under their feet. We want to bring people into the gospel. That's what Jesus is, what Peter is talking about. That's what Jesus is always talking about. And that's what these verses are about. It's really interesting. Judgment, even for Peter in this moment, doesn't actually sound like it's the end. It sounds like there's always this opportunity that people who really know Jesus, who really trust Jesus, that even when they're dead, there's a chance. Even when they're just in the pit of hell. Well, of course, Jesus went down into the pit of hell like a Trojan horse. He, he just, they let him in, and they shouldn't have. And when they let him in, he, he just he busted out of the place. He knocked down all the walls. He took all the keys. And anybody who wanted to follow him out could follow him out. No one is there who's not there voluntarily. Anyone and everyone who wants to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ can hear it, even dead, Peter seems to say. It's a crazy and weird thing to say, and I don't really know how it works. All I can tell you is that I was dead, and now I've come back to life in Jesus. And I believe that's possible for you and for the world outside. In the early church, there was a sermon that people used to preach they would write down sermons. They would preach the same sermon. They used to preach it between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So it was on Holy Saturday. And I want to read you a little bit of it. It sounds like this. God has died in the flesh, and the underworld has trembled. Truly, he goes to seek out our first parent like a lost sheep. He wishes to visit those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. He goes to free prisoner Adam and his fellow prisoner Eve from their pains. He who is God and Adam's son. The Lord goes into them holding his victorious weapon, his cross. And he says, awake sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ shall give you life. I am your God who for your sake became your son. Who for you and your descendants now speak and command with authority those in prison come out. Those in darkness have light. Those who sleep rise. I have not made you to be a prisoner. Arise from the dead. I am the life of the dead. Arise, O oh man, work in my hands. Arise, let us go. The gospel. The gospel is that I was dead. Now I'm alive. The gospel is that you were dead, and now you're alive. The gospel is that you were lost, and now you've been found. The gospel is that the world out there is something that God loves. The people out there are people that God loves. That if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, that God loves you. There's a better way of life than the one that you got. <clears throat> the gospel isn't that I've become better <clears throat> than the people who don't know Jesus. That's not how it is. The girl I was talking to had been raised in a Christianity that told her that the gospel was about being better than the rest of the world. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that I was unrighteous and that Jesus, who is righteous, died for me to change my life and change my story. And you and I, we go out into a world with that kind of news, with delicious news, with the aroma, the fragrance of Christ. And if we really act and live like the God that we follow, if we become like Jesus, we're going to change our surroundings. The world around us will slowly and steadily find that they're smelling the fragrance of Christ around them. The aroma of the gospel, the love of Jesus. It's delicious. Friends, live 
deliciously, live differently. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you.